Good morning, everybody. Good to see everybody. Today, if you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we are going to finish the chapter. And I'm trying something a little bit different. I'm taking preaching one in my seminary courses. And one of the things that I have to do is give a, for the assignments is give a couple of sermon briefs. Or a brief, pretty much like an outline saying what I'm going to do, trying to get it more organized. And to be honest, I'm looking forward to this flash because I want to get a little bit more organized in the way I structure any of my teachings or preaching. So I have what you see there. I'm going to try to follow this kind of format to see how it works. So hopefully it won't be a disaster. I'll trust God in that. But First Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to finish the chapter. If everyone can go and grab their coffee and do all that, and while you're doing that, I am going to open in a word of prayer. So let's join me. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are so gracious and you are so good. You're so loving. You're so merciful. You're so forgiving. You're an amazing provider. You're an amazing protector. And you're a perfect source of power, Lord God, and if there's one thing that I am reminded of all the time is my inadequacy, Lord God, but it's the same for all of us when it comes to understanding spiritual things. We need you. We need your strength. We need your power, Lord God, to live the Christian life. And it doesn't change, Lord God. So as we're here this morning, as we commit this time to you, Lord God, to bring you the honor and glory that you deserve, I pray, Lord God, that you would be the very strength and power that we need this morning, both in me teaching and pastor preaching and John preaching tonight, Lord God, and for everyone that's going to receive and sit and listen, Lord God, that you would give us those ears to hear, Lord, that we would believe and understand that we have those ears to hear if we're your children. So let us be confident in that. Let us be excited, Lord God, to to learn what you have said to us in your word. So I ask for strength again from your spirit, and we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So I'm going to read verses 12 to 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 20. It says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. But God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take uh, take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. But do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So if you look at your outline here, the topic today is going to be, I'm going to name it, loyalty to the master. Pretty straightforward, pretty simple. 
And the general objective is going to be the glory of God. We can probably say that for every, every message, right? But the specific objective is going to be that the church would understand that they have been purchased by God and that they belong both body and soul to Him. If I can give a thesis for this message, it would be, we must strive to love our Lord with all our being and love our brethren by doing what is best for them. And there's a general outline that I'm going to follow. That which is beneficial triumphs over that which is lawful. Verse 12. Number two, our bodies are God's instruments to be used for His purposes. Verses 13 to 20. And then sexual sin is a unique sin that affects our bodies and bodies of others. Really, you can eliminate that last part. Actually, I forgot to delete that on this. But our bodies. And there's a reason why. I'm just going to say that it affects our bodies. So... It does affect the body of others as well. So let's look at number one here. Verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. So, for an explanation here, Paul corrects them on their improper use of slogans. It could be very possible that the apostle came up with this slogan, which is, all things are lawful for me. It could have been something that Paul came up with. He did say in other areas of scripture. It could be something that was just generally in the culture around them. But slogans, whether he came up with this or not, the Corinthians were making foolish use of it. They were showing their immaturity by taking slogans and taking them out of context. Slogans are kind of like catchphrases, right? They're used to help explain something or associate with something. But we need to read between the lines a bit in order to really understand them at times. So we have to ask ourselves this question, are all things really lawful? I'm going to say that there are two answers to this question because there are two different senses, I believe, in answering this question. So in the first sense, I'm going to say that the answer is yes. We know that we do not have a license to sin, but no list of sins, no matter how great, will bring eternal judgment on the true believer, right? Everything that we have ever committed or will commit, no matter how vile, no matter how bad, no matter how bad has been paid for on the cross, poured upon the wrath of God onto Christ, right? We will never pay for any of that. Our sins have been washed away and we have been eternally cleansed through the cross work of the Savior. And we know that sin brings condemnation. But we know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. After Paul gave his theological portion of the book of Romans in the first eight chapters, towards the end of chapter 8, he gives that great doxology, but in verse 37, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we know we love, we embrace these scriptures, right? It's one of the things that almost every Christian loves to when we're, especially when they need encouragement to know that nothing will separate us from God's love. And this would include our own personal sins. And perhaps this was most clear with the thief on a cross, right? If you go back to that story 
of when our Lord died on the cross, we know that one of those thieves, his personal sin led him to the cross. He essentially had nothing to offer and nothing to bring to the table. And yet he had the greatest thing, he was chosen. And we know that he was chosen because he believed in the only hope. Remember me when you get in your kingdom. And we know what our Lord said to him. So that's the first sense. But in the other sense, I'm going to say, is no. Is, there, is everything lawful? No. Sin is still sin, even in the life of believers. The definition of sin does not change once we get saved, right? And he came that he might deliver us from our sins, and in him there is no sin. Sin is still not conforming to or transgressing God's perfect holy law. And every one of us have sinned, and God doesn't say it's okay for us to sin. We're called to be holy just as he is holy. But Paul, so Paul follows up with the qualification of this slogan by saying, not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. It's the word simpharo in the Greek. It means beneficial, profitable, just as our translations say. So in other words, Paul is calling them to think about their actions to see whether or not their actions, or maybe lack of action in a different context, will accomplish anything beneficial or good for the sake of your brother or sister in the Lord. Because everything that we do should be for their benefit, right? The things that we do, our spiritual gifts that He has equipped us with, is for the building up of the body. The building up of what? So that the body of Christ would look and be more like the very Lord and Savior that saved them. Right? And that should be... So we have an opportunity. Every time we act, every time we speak, we should really stop for a second. This is convicting. It's convicting to me. Is what I'm doing, is what I'm about to say, going to bring any good? Is it going to produce anything good? It's very convicting. Because how often do we not do that? Well, I can at least say how often do I not do that? You know? And he goes on to say, so essentially he's saying, are your rights and are your freedoms, because we have many of them in Christ Jesus, but are they going to master you? He says, but I will not be mastered by anything. Because there's room for only one master in the life of every saint's life. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we are to make it our aim. The goal in sanctification is lordship, though, we have not mastered lordship, right? We strive to make that happen. So our Lord, I believe, spoke very clearly on the idea of only one master in Matthew chapter 6. In verse 24, he says, No one can serve two masters. And all these verses should be on Oshichia. Yeah. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise to other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And the context there was he's using wealth. We can replace wealth with anything. But this is just the object lesson here. And we saw this very clear, I believe, with the rich young ruler. Right? Remember the, the, the rich young ruler? I actually believe, though he may have been a little bit overconfident, when he said to the Lord, all these things I have kept since my youth, I believe he was being sincere. I believe he was a decent man. But when our Lord said, go sell everything you have and come follow me, he couldn't do it. 
You cannot serve or be devoted to both. So we must remember that wealth, in this context, is not sinful like many of our freedoms are not sinful. They're freedoms. But when we get them out of their proper place, they can, they can become sinful or unprofitable. Now I read this article as I was studying on the Desiring God website that struck my attention. It really struck my attention for me. Just the title kind of got my attention. And the title of this, uh, I guess this, this article on that website was, You Cannot Serve Both God and Theology. So I kind of had a feeling of where he was going to go. You know, we uphold theology, you know, good theology. We believe that doctrine is extremely important here. What we teach is extremely important because if you teach Scripture falsely, then really what, what kind of, what Jesus do you really know? What Jesus are you really serving? So we know that theology is very important. But even that couldn't get out of place. So let me just read what, a little section of it. It says, Money is a tangible, countable, often visible God. Theology, on the other hand, if it is cut off from truly knowing and enjoying God Himself, can be a soothing, subtle, superficially spiritual God. Both are deadly, but one lulls us into a proud, intellectual, and purely cosmetic confidence and rest before God. Theology will kill you if it does not kindle a deep and abiding love for the God of the Bible, and if it does not inspire a desire for His glory, and not ultimately our own. I thought that was very convicting. Theology, this, is not, this doesn't make me uh, take, change my stance on the importance of good theology and being able to understand and learn and study and teach accurately. But the whole purpose of it is we can still lose sight of it. We can get very, you know, I've said this to you guys before, even in, in seminary, in academia, I guess, within that realm, there can be a tremendous amount of, I call it just academic arrogance. And what they're saying is actually true a lot of times, but what's taking place is not very good at all. It's not very attractive, right? So again, everything, yeah, we care about this and the purity of this, but for the purpose that we would know him more that we would be, on, be able to bring honor and glory to His name and really get closer and understand who our Lord is. And I thought that was just really good. So if you move on to an illustration, Paul had every right to receive compensation for his work as an apostle. But we know that at times he didn't because it would be more fruitful or more profitable to those who he ministered to. We, we see the... We'll see the specifics of this in chapter 9 of this letter. But essentially, let me just sum it up. Paul listed many rights that he and some of his companions had. But in the context of the church at Corinth, he saw that it would be better to forfeit these rights for the sake of the gospel and not being hindered. And we have to, we have to exercise that same principle at times. Maybe we, yeah, we're free to do a lot of things, but is that freedom going to be a hindrance? We have to ask ourselves that question. Because if it is, then we should gladly lose that freedom for the sake of the furthering of the gospel, for a building up of someone else. So if I can give an application to this, I would say we must understand that because we are His, and we are, 
we should make it our aim to live our lives as if they are not our own. Our lives are not our own. We belong, both body and soul, to the one who made us. You know, Jesus said of John the Baptist, he said, no one is greater that was born of woman. Right? That he was the greatest prophet. He was the one who was a forerunner to him. He prepared the way for him. His ministry was very profound. He lived a very humble life. He was in the wilderness. He ate locusts and wild honey. He was not much to look at, again, as his appearance. And what he did was that he was devoted in proclaiming the Christ who was to come. And he himself was able to actually see the Christ. Many prophets, all those that spoke of him in the Old Testament, had no clue about seeing him or when he was going to come. They just knew that he was going to come. And... His disciples, John had disciples as well, and many of them became disciples of Jesus. And he says these very profound words, and I've used them very often, I use them very often in my prayers. In John 3.30, he said, He, Jesus, must increase. Now that Jesus is on the scene, there's room for no one else. He must increase, but I must decrease Paul, writing to the Galatian church, says these great words. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we must remember that when a time comes where we have to choose between our freedoms and that which is beneficial to others... What are we going to pick? The motivation is pretty clear in this passage. I have been, Paul said, it is no longer I, but Christ. And that should be our mindset in everything that we do. Now again, this is convicting because I, can, I should probably say that. I should have this written, uh, written someplace and carry it with me, especially at work. I have been, it is no longer I, but Christ, because it's so easy for the mic to come out, the old mic. And that's never good. Colossians 3, verses 1 to 4, says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, he's speaking to the church, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. And verse 2 really stood out to me here. Setting our minds on the things above includes several things. The first, of course, is the great glory which is going to be revealed in us. That is our great and perfect life that awaits us in the age to come. It's something that we should all look forward to. At that moment, we are going to have a perfect body and a perfect soul and a perfect will, right? And the ultimate result when all those three things are together is going to be us giving perfect worship to the King. Right now, we worship the Lord again, but you know I've said this, I've preached on this. We worship Him imperfectly. 
and I can't stand it, right? That I don't give him the worship that he deserves. But one day, yet this is bringing him honor when we come together. Understand what I'm saying. Here, in this body, it's not going to be quite what it will be, what it should be. But one day, it will, in fact, be perfect. The second, and I think more helpful in this context, is setting our minds on the one who is above. This would include, of course, the first uh, verse 1 as well. This would include the whole Godhead and the wonderful Trinitarian work that they did, but mostly Christ, who was our perfect example when He was here. On Him who was both risen and coming back, right? And again, He's coming back to make things right. Setting our minds on Him. And until that day, we should be ones trying to make things right by being beacons of righteousness and nothing less. Proverbs 16.3 says, Commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. You know, if we want success, we all want success living this Christian life, right? And we know that looks different than what the world calls success. We want, if we want success, we must be committed to the one that made us and saved us. Our lives are not our own. Any questions? Comments? No? Okay, I'm going to move on. What does condemnation mean? Condemnation means... Oh man, how do I get... If you're condemned, you are... You're found guilty. You're going to go... You're, you're essentially, you're doomed for help. Okay, so let's look at number two now. In our outline, our bodies are God's instruments to be used for His purposes. If you were in prayer today, if you guys listened to Darlene, that, we kept on, that theme kept on coming up in prayer today. That our bodies are God's instruments to be used for His, for His purposes. Verses 13 to 17. Let me just read them again. He said, food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. But God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for sexual morality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. So let's look at this. Though our flesh is sinful and will see corruption, we're not taking it with us, right? It is still meant for the Lord. We know that one day it will be raised perfectly by the very God who bought us. Therefore we must seek to bring honor to our Lord with these bodies until we die. So that means it's a constant battle. It's a constant keeping ourselves in check. Right? Then he says this phrase, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. And this was probably another slogan being used and abused by a very immature church. So all they did was use the same slogan and now take it maybe to a different context, thinking 
that they're going to use the same logic. In other words, just like we satisfy our stomachs when we're hungry, right? We feed them. But now they're going to make the same exact argument for their sexual appetites. Just like the stomach is hungry, we feed it. Well, we have these sexual appetites, so we must satisfy them using the same logic. And essentially, Paul just squashes their thinking, thinking that they can have the best of both worlds. That's not how it works, right? So he reminds them of several things as we go through this text. First, God will do away with them both, the body and the food that it consumes. Everything that is physical or created in this world is going to be destroyed, right? Second, he says that the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Now, as sinful as this body is, and many of us deal with, we, we, we recognize that, right? I'm confronted with that reality every day, right? We cannot give up on the battle and use the flesh's desire as an excuse to just throw in a towel, right? God does not give us that excuse. He doesn't leave that. We must remember again that this is the only time that we will have an opportunity to subject the flesh and its desires to the one who is Lord of it. Because one day in the future, we're not going to have any more battle. And we so look forward to that, right? But now is a unique time that, the only time in our lives, that we can actually walk by the Spirit and not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Because when we're in eternity, there's not going to be a battle. Our flesh is going to be perfect. There's not going to be any weakness of sin. Third, we must remember that the Lord is for the body. You know, we know that God is not against us, but for us. Our bodies are His instruments and also His dwelling place, as we're going to see. And He cares about the instruments He uses for His work. Fourth, Just like God raised the Lord, He's also going to raise us through His power. And we need to live life as in the already, not yet. Right? We have been raised with Him. So even though this flesh will see corruption, it will be made new one day. And until that day, it is to be ruled by the Spirit who dwells in it. Right? The hard thing, of course, is, well, how do we do that? And I'm going to touch on that a little bit as we go on towards the end. And then in verse 15, he gives another do you not know question. There's several in this passage. And we already said that when he says do you not know, it means that they should have known. Right? It's a rhetorical question. So 50 says, we are all members of Christ. The church. We're all members of Christ. We're called the what? The bride of Christ. And sexual sin is unfaithfulness to a perfect husband. Any of us here who are husbands are imperfect. No matter how we try to be a good husband, right? But we're imperfect husband. So sexual sin is unfaithfulness to a perfect husband. Sixth, because of the act itself, you now become joined with another. So I can give an illustration here. 
the Apostle Paul wanted the Roman Christians to understand the transforming power that the Gospel brings. It's not just about being saved, but being truly a new creation, right? It is recognizing two very important things. Number one, for the, in the life of a believer, a death has occurred, and a new birth has occurred. Romans chapter 6, verse 12 to 14 says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So, we are not to let sin reign because we have died to it. And we have been born again. We are to be governed by God who is the master. Whether we make him that or not, he is the master. But also, those under grace are free from the tyrannical rulership of the flesh. So we must believe that. So for application here, all these truths are of no effect... If we do not do what? I just said it. Believe. Believe it. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. I know I say that so often again. I usually follow up by saying I do not apologize for that. We stand here as believers in faith. We live this Christian life in faith no matter where we are. Not in church, outside of church, when we are alone in our own minds. When it's just us and God, we live by faith. And we're here to please Him. And if we don't walk in faith, it's impossible to do that. So I know that presenting the instruments of my body to God in light of my new life in Him is something that pleases Him. Therefore, we must do it. And we won't do it if we do not believe it. That we have to believe in what He has said in His Word. And when we struggle, Lord, help my unbelief. So we must believe it. And let's move on now to our third point. We're moving kind of fast today, but that's okay. Number three, sexual sin is a unique sin that affects our bodies. Verses 18 to 20. It says, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral man sins against his own body. But do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So the first thing that we must understand is that even though sexual sin can bring physical harm to the body, we have diseases, we have, there's a whole list of things, right? I do not believe that this is what Paul is saying. Many sinful acts can harm our bodies, right? You can think of a whole list, right? Substance abuse, whatever. You know, nowadays, right? People who mutilate their bodies, right? So many sinful acts can harm our bodies and they would fall under every other sin that man commits, that he speaks about 
in these verses. So this must not be talking about what's going to actually happen to my body, disease-wise or something like that. We learned in verse 15 that we are members of Christ. And I think this is where he's talking about. We are members of Christ. That our bodies, which are temples, are members of Him. Right? And the picture here is of a marriage. And the concept that we see in marriage of oneness. Being joined where nothing can separate it. Right? Richard Pratt gives good insight on this. This is what he says. He says, Sexual union with a prostitute violates one's body by bringing it into a wrongful one-flesh union and by flaunting the mystical union with Christ. It is in this sense that sexual immorality is a unique sin against the body. It violates the most significant fact about believers' physical existence. Their bodies belong to Christ. And I like what he says there. So therefore, Paul reminds the Corinthians of what they should know again by letting them know that their bodies are the temple of God. And not only that, he reminds them of the price paid. Right? Every time you observe the Lord's table, but we don't need to just observe the Lord's table to be reminded of what Christ did. The precious blood of Him is what cleanses us. And we believe that a man... 2,000 years ago was not just any ordinary man. And that his blood was in fact very powerful. His death was powerful because it was the death of a perfect man who just happens to be the God-man. And we believe that with every fiber of our being as his children. So we ought not to be so flippant and thoughtless concerning this amazing and wonderful truth. Be thankful. Understand it. Embrace it. Understand this is serious thing that has taken place, and it has taken place for us. So what are we doing in response to what He has given us? For an illustration here, remember the words said from the beginning concerning God's plan for marriage in Genesis. If you go back to Genesis, chapter 2, in verse 22, says the Lord God well, let's even go. Let's just sum up before I even read that. Let's just remember what Adam did, right? God brought all the animals to Adam. Eve was not made yet. And he saw that they were in twos. And he saw that it seemed like they fit together. All different kinds of animals. And then he noticed that he was alone. Well, what about me? Right? So keep that. In your minds, and he says in verse 22, The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to him. Then a man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. They are to operate as one being, though being two beings. Right? The union is to be so strong that nothing can unjoin them. That's why God hates divorce. It happens. We understand that. 
but he hates it because of what it pictures, right? When Jesus was speaking on divorce, he quoted these creation verses and added something else saying this in Matthew 19.6. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Because the picture is here is that nothing can separate us from God's love. And it should be a reflection of that. So for application... You know that I love the quote Galatians 5.16. That's walk by the Spirit. And you shall not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Did you ever ask yourself how we live the Christian life? Or how do we do this? Maybe we're not satisfied with the answer given in Galatians 5.16. It tells us to do something. right? We are required to do something. Walk by the Spirit. So maybe we still need help on how to apply it. Well, there is the reality that at times we must simply run for our lives in the opposite direction, believing in the strength and the power of the Lord, knowing that we have His favor in doing it. So for application, I was thinking, what can can I do for application here? And I just went right into the first three words in verse 18. Flee from it. Flee sexual immorality. And we can use that with any sin. God says, walk by the Spirit. I understand I must do something. I must somehow believe that the Spirit of God resides in me. I must believe that He is way more powerful than my my flesh and the flesh's desires. That He is... That His grace is so much greater than my sin. Right? And my calling as a believer is to trust and obey. I mean, I don't know how to really paint a better picture. God's word says, run away from it. So you have to ask ourselves, who do I love more at any given moment? And we should ask ourselves these questions. And I'm guilty of not stopping maybe and asking myself these questions more often. We're all in the middle of our sanctification, Right? But when those moments happen, we need to stop and ask ourselves, okay, I have the Spirit, I know what He tells me to do, I know He says, walk by the Spirit, and I will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. I know He says, abide in me, and if, my, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be given to you. These are all things that He said to us, but now He says here, run away from it. How do I do it? At times, we just simply have to run away in the opposite direction. And we will be blessed for it. So again, let us do this and help each other to do this for the glory of the King. That's all I have. If anyone has anything to say, you're welcome. Comments? Questions? No? Alrighty. Alright, let's pray and let's get ready to worship. In the sanctuary, Father, again, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the power that is in it, the power of the Holy Spirit in helping us to obey it and to apply it, Lord God. And and Lord, I pray that as we want to apply your word for ourselves, that we be just as much aware and conscious of others, Lord God, knowing that
We all play a part in the sense of each other's sanctification. I know I have to be careful how I said that, Lord, but we are to care for one another and do whatever possible to help each other, Lord God. It's your spirit that's going to do all the work and it's your spirit that's going to get the glory. So Lord, help us to just, again, to believe and to believe and to believe some more. Because it's very easy, Lord God, to get distracted by the deceitfulness of sin. But you are so much greater. So help us, Lord, to remember that. But let it not just be a memory, Lord God, but it be a memory that produces action and nothing less. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.